Hello and welcome back to Gallo Vault Sessions, a six-part podcast series brought to you by Gallo Music in collaboration with Gonjo. We're so glad you've made it to the third episode of the season. In this podcast, we chat with artists, label execs, radio veterans and thinkers as we explore the backstories and overlooked tapes from the Gallo Music Vault and reflect on the ways music shapes culture and how our culture has been shaped by music. Whilst we have come to know Gallo for acts like the Mahotela Queens and Lucky Dube, it turns out that the majority of the Gallo Vault actually consists of Afrikaans language music, recorded mostly between the 1930s and 70s by white musicians for the local Afrikaner audience. This is some of the music we will hear today, including, in fact, a less-known side project of Lucky Dubes in which he sang Afrikaans. In our last episode, we heard about the ways the Bruderbund weaponized music in the retribalization project of the apartheid regime, and the ways the South African Broadcasting Corporation's Radio Bantu placed limits on the ways music was segregated and circulated according to race, genre, and language. The commissioning of the Bantu radio system was basically an idea of the Brudebond. That is an absolute fact. The reason the Brudebond created this system, it was just part of the, the master plan about how they were going to build up all this tribal ethnic identity, specifically directed as part of the greater divide and rule plan to, to build up ethnic conscience, which hopefully was then going to be useful in fomenting ethnic group versus ethnic group conflict. You could almost say that it was evil. While we know now how the Bruderbund and, by extension, the SABC, attempted to control the airwaves and retribalization of South African black communities, we often don't consider how the sound of whiteness, and in particular, Afrikanerdom, was also constructed. And so, in this episode, we will explore how music, in particular, was used as a means of forming Afrikaner conscience in the wake of the Anglo-Boer War, and how various musicians reacted against the Bruderbund's idea of what it means to be a good Afrikaner. To help us tell the story, we chat with some new voices. Musician and music historian Skulk van der Merwe, critical whiteness study scholar Tandiwe Nchinga, legacy artist Anton Khursen, and of course, Gallo Music's resident archivist, Rob Allingham. But before we start our story, we have a quick note from our producer. It is important to note that much of the contemporary language of the recording industry continues to be influenced by South Africa's apartheid racial classifications and the South African Broadcasting Corporation's policies under the apartheid regime. We are aware that some of the language used by the guests in this series is outdated, and in some cases, pejorative, and we see it as our duty to critically unpack these nuanced connections so that we can imagine new language for the recording industry on the continent. The term Afrikaner can sometimes be a loaded one, and it might benefit us to spend some time understanding the ways it has evolved since the arrival of Dutch colonizers at the Cape in the mid-1600s. It is thought that the word Afrikaner was first used to classify groups of mixed-race ancestry in the Cape Colony. 
Folks of Indonesian, indigenous Khoi, San, Bantu, Dutch, Flemish, French Huguenot, German, and Nordic descent. The first recorded instance of a colonist identifying as an Afrikaner occurred in 1707, where we began to see a rise of a new identity for white South Africans, suggesting for the first time an identification with the Cape Colony rather than with an ancestral homeland in Europe. The term Boer, however, typically referred to those settlers who migrated east as nomadic cattle herders or farmers and subsequently established the Boer republics the Transvaal and the Free State after what we now call the Great Trek. This was the immigration of approximately 13,000 Dutch-speaking settlers traveling by wagon trains between 1835 and 1845 to the interior region of the country in the hopes of living beyond the British colonial administration that had subsequently established itself in the Cape. Even so, in 1899, we saw the outbreak of the Anglo-Boer War or what some called the South Africa War, between the Boer Republics and the British colonial forces, both of whom were fighting to obtain control over the region and its rich mineral reserves. Whilst it isn't a moment in history that many South Africans focus on, it's absolutely essential in understanding the psychology that spawned Afrikaner nationalism, and by extension, apartheid, and the social and political backdrop for most of the music we explore in this podcast. The military tactics of the British were incredibly brutal, with figures such as Lord Kuchner, who deployed a scorched earth on all Afrikaans and black-owned farms, pushing their inhabitants into segregated concentration camps. The British won the war, which resulted in the unification of South Africa in 1910, accommodating the two colonial provinces, the Cape and Natal as well as the former Boer republics. It was four years before this that the first commercial recording in Afrikaans was made. The oldest recordings that were commercially released in South Africa were recorded by the Springbok rugby team on tour to the UK in 1906. You know, they had one night off when they went to a, a studio there in London and they just recorded folk songs. The first records were Afrikaans records that you could buy in South Africa were imported in 1910, which is also the year of unification. And at that time still, among the Afrikaners and the English-speaking South Africans, or the British, after the Boer War, the South African War, there was still a lot of tension. But it's interesting to read the advertisements. I'm paraphrasing, but something like, if you want to listen to good music, you don't need to listen to English records anymore. Now you can listen to it in the language that's in the heart of the poor. This is Skalk van der Merwe, musician and research associate at the General Linguistic Department at Stellenbosch University, who published the book On Record, Popular Afrikaans Music and Society. My name's Skalk van der Merwe. I started my recording career about 25, 26 years ago, and I've done a lot of work within the space of popular Afrikaans music, mainly from the rock periphery looking in at the mainstream. And I was always wondering how come the pop artists, how come they are the cultural torchbearers of Afrikaans culture? When you talk about Afrikaans, you must always remember that it's a very diverse linguistic community that reflects the particular history of the Cape. It had its root in a settler colony, but also in the slave society. And so you always have different cultural practices that belong to different speakers of Afrikaans. The Klopse, for instance. I think there's records of regular Klopse performances in Cape Town dating to the 1870s. 
The Gopsa Klopsa is a cultural and musical tradition that centers around the minstrel festivals that takes place on Tuera Niva Yar, the 2nd of January, celebrated and performed mostly by folks racialized Cape Colored. Its roots go back to the 1800s in the Cape Colony, where enslaved persons would get the day off on the 2nd of January to celebrate the new year in their own way, with the songs of the Malay choirs and guma drum rhythms. Let's listen to Uam Yakels by the Central Malay Choir, a combined choir especially assembled for the Gallotone recordings of Malay Quarter, Volumes 1 and 2. So you have a playing tradition of performance of Afrikaans music, and this is also, I feel, the origin of a lot of recorded Afrikaans music. The first people to start recording Afrikaans were white Afrikaans speakers that had bursaries to study in London. But what they recorded were traditional uh, songs, but also hymnals that were less rooted in the music traditions of the Cape and more rooted in Western hymnal music that was translated into Afrikaans directly from either English or, or Dutch. It's around that time that you see a lot of cultural ephemera among white African speakers, because they're also in a privileged position and have access to the modes of production, that you see a white Afrikaner identity emerging that can be quite distinguished from what was before. During the First World War, when South Africa declared war on Germany as an ally of Britain, it angered a lot of Afrikaners that were so scarred by the South African war. It's barely 12 years prior to that. And also the fact that Germany at the time were very sympathetic towards the Boers during the war. So that led to the formation of the National Party as a breakaway nationalistic-minded segment of that specific population group. So that's where you start seeing the Afrikaner issue becoming a thing, becoming a political thing. There was quite a relatively small group of intellectuals that started moving away from Dutch and into something that can be differentiated from just being Dutch descent and being something new that's Afrikaner. And like all nationalisms, it's a myth it's an identity that's constructed. And I find the construction of Afrikaner nationalist identity really picking up speed in the 1930s. In addition to the global depression, the 1930s in South Africa saw a drought and cattle disease, which drove many white Afrikaans speakers from their power base in the rural heartlands of the country into the cities along with black migrant workers to work on the mines. You have the influx of Afrikaners into the cities. They are not educated. The only thing that they've got going for them is that they're white. And in the worldview of South African politics, they have the vote but they were living in shanty towns alongside all the other migrants and they were intermarrying. So suddenly you saw these photographs of white people, you know, that are poor, which was a political danger because it 
brought into question this idea and this construct with its roots in the colonial mindset of white superiority that you see in colonies the world over. And, and this prompted the Afrikaner intellectuals to really embark upon strategies of social upliftment on various fronts. So poor whites actually are a big reason why apartheid happened. This was the rehabilitation. This was the upliftment. This was bringing them to standards of whiteness that are acceptable. Poor whites have always been around. It's not like they just came after apartheid. This is Tandiwe Njinga a writer and critical whiteness studies scholar whose work has focused on the rehabilitation project targeting poor white folks in South Africa, both during apartheid and today. The processes of rehabilitation and upliftment were based on these ideas of respectability. And there are these social cultural expectations as the chosen people that they decided that they were when they made themselves Afrikaans. On the cultural side was a real concerted effort to construct an Afrikaner nationalist identity to uplift these people out of poverty. That's one of the foundations for apartheid, actually, the protection of white workers but also a paternalistic hand in educating them on what is good behavior and good culture and acceptable music and what is not. Then they had terms like folksfriendlich, friendly to the folk, and folksfriend. This is unacceptable. This was really kind of a populist movement. It really brought the white Afrikaans-speaking community out of their holes and, and, and created spaces where they celebrated being an Afrikaner. And they created these iconography and the sonic elements and the visual elements and a lot of cultural, I can say abracadabra, mamba jumbo was, <laughs> was involved, you know, was present in that process. And although it wasn't strictly political, the main people that benefited from that was the more radical nationalists that eventually 10 years later won the general election and ushered in apartheid. This is where the notion of ortendlikheid, decency, comes to the fore where the Bruderbond and its public face, the FRK, the Afrikaans Cultural Federation, introduced a set of guidelines of what would deem culture of a high standing for the Afrikaner. In that, poor whites become the buffer between black and white. Their performance of whiteness and their performance of Afrikanerness is so incredibly dramatic because they're the ones who've had to protect their race, you know? <laughs> as much as they're the threat to whiteness, they also have to protect whiteness from the threat of blackness. Rob Allingham. The reason the Brudabon created this system, it was just part of the master plan about how they were going to build up all this tribal ethnic identity with the idea that basically they were going to divide the country and all these people were going to leave the cities and go to these allegedly independent Bantu stands. It was specifically directed as part of the greater divide and rule plan to build up ethnic conscience, which hopefully was then going to be useful in fomenting ethnic group versus ethnic group conflict. You could almost say that it was evil, <laughs> but it did have this marvelous side effect that it created a market for the record companies to record these quote-unquote ethnic musicians to supply music to these radio stations. And I mean, there was a lot of absolutely fantastic music that came out of it. And uh, dare I say also extremely 
distinctively African music as well. Fostrap was a style of up-tempo Afrikaans music for dancing. Primarily instrumental, Fostrap later became lumped into what we now refer to as Bura Musique. The most successful early example of this style released by Gallo Music was David de Lange's 1936 release of Sekerbosi. Here we can hear the distinct influence of Malay choir, klopsa, and Marawi jazz musical traditions. One of the first mandates for the FRK was to collect all the Afrikaans traditional songs and publish it in the songbook which eventually, it took eight years to do it, and they eventually published the first FRK song bundle in 1938. It's just as interesting to see the songs that they omitted than to see the songs that they included. Interestingly enough as well, a lot of those songs, probably unknowingly, were really squarely rooted in library song traditions and the music of the Cape and all that. But the FRK did not like Sacred Voice. It was the biggest hit of the 1930s, was not included in the FRK song bin. So Dolange was never played over the radio in South Africa. It was played in LM radio in what was then Lorenzo Marx. <laughs> Throughout his short six-year career, David Delanga is said to have sold almost a million records, yet he was still cast away as a so-called embarrassment to the Afrikaner as a poor white mine worker who didn't subscribe to the FRK's parameters of Ortendlakeit. Nevertheless, people have said that David Delange was solely responsible for the financial survival of Gallo during the 1930s Depression era. The traditions and the origins of Burmistic really lies with the laborers that worked on the farms, that played the music so that the farm owner could dance to it on weekends and those kind of things. But you had these white Burmistic artists that were working in the mines by day and recording by night. I mean, within the conservative Afrikaner society, you know, they were still debating whether or not you could have fundraisers for the Afrikaner poor by hosting dances, because, you know, they were so conservative that they thought that it was a sin, because nationalism wasn't the only ideology available to Afrikaners during that time. They had socialists as well. You had unionist elements as well. So this was really, if you are playing popular music in Afrikaans and it's not sanctioned, it was not just bad taste, it was abomination. It goes against this master narrative of the God-ordained place at the helm of South Africa, you know. So people took it quite seriously, those that objected to it. A foil to this was the semi-operatic German Schlager-inspired music that was sanctioned by the FRK and represented the Ordentlicher Afrikaner, with cultured scenes of Afrikanerdom that took rise in the 1950s and 60s as the Afrikaner middle class started to grow due to success of apartheid. That's when the Schlager music from continental Europe became imported and singing about holidays in Venice or, you know, singing about the fauna and flora, singing about how beautiful South Africa is. It's German hit music 
pretty much with translated Afrikaans lyrics. A lot of Gai Korsten stuff from the 1960s, or his debut album was in 1966 called Erika. Erika originally was a marching song from the Waffen SS in the <laughs> it's a Nazi marching song, but it, it, it went gold in South Africa in the 1960s. And that Goebbels <laughs> deliberately made them broadcast light-hearted music in times of war. Yikes. Let's listen to a bit of Erika by Gallo musician Gay Gorsten, who, clearly influenced by World War II-era German music, had a significant impact on Afrikaans culture. psychology here that it has no no direct relation to South African society and definitely not South African politics but it's got it's related to South African landscape in a sense oh Tafelbach of Blaubachstrand you know of Polygon Perl too of so it's very much this European sounding stuff On the other side of the equation, you had what people at the time just referred to, well, this is just, you know, it's Afrikaans music. But in fact, what it was, it was American country music altered marginally from an actual musical standpoint, but obviously, you know, with Afrikaans lyrics. Sometimes it was it was referred to as trana trekkers, tear pullers. Typical example would be this uh, group called the Brills, Franz and Sonny Brill, who recorded for True Tone in the 1950s. It's in the early 60s that True Tone gets sold to Eric Gallo. Many of their most famous songs are just direct translations in Afrikaans of American country songs. You know, it was like, you know, mother's dead and daddy's dying kind of stuff, you know? Let's listen to the Brills, Trey na Pretoria. Pretoria, 
This song was a translation of Mac Wiseman's The Eastbound Train, which was initially released on Brunswick and distributed locally through Gallo. I can't give you sales figures. I can only tell you that if you look at the amount of records that the Brills recorded for True Tone, I mean, we're talking about a catalog that must have ultimately, it's like several hundred recordings. So you know that this stuff was selling by the bucketful. It was never, ever played on the SABC. Absolutely forbidden. No, 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 no. And there was a whole genre of this stuff. Even without getting played on the radio, the stuff sold by the bloody bucketful. They were very different to someone like Clay Corsons, for instance. Tansani Brill, it was a singing duo. Sonny was a forklift driver and the husband worked in the mines. So they were solid working class Afrikaners. And they would literally go and look at dramatic news events and then write songs about that. So there's a mine tragedy and they'll write a song about the poor miners down the shaft, you know, dying or the poor girl on the train to Pretoria. I didn't have any money. It's like putting teeth listening to that music. But I find it interesting because it was the antithesis of people singing about a holiday in Venice. These people haven't even heard of Venice, you know. It was very much out of their cultural perspective. I'm a yappy, you see, from Sonically, the white Afrikaans here is tuned into either country music from the States or the schlager hits, like Soki Treffers, you know? Right now, the poor Afrikaners of the mid-1930s had become middle class by the late 1950s because apartheid worked in uplifting them. Of course, at a greater cost to the rest of society. So they had kitsch tastes. Suddenly you see Afrikaners playing golf, you know? You've got the first generation that goes to university. You have Mercedes dealerships in every small town. You know, it's the Nouveau Riche. That kind of thing sells. Uh, I think it's still like that in many ways. The segregation under grand apartheid was so successful that white South Africans lived on white beaches, white neighborhoods, white schools. They very rarely got a glimpse of the effect of apartheid. And to a certain degree, and the majority of Afrikaners at this time are not too concerned about politics because it's working for them. You don't have overtly supportive music and you don't have critical or protest music in Afrikaans really until the end of the 1970s and into the 1980s. The critical white voice is still very much in its infancy. In his book, Skulk writes that it is perhaps for this reason that commercial Afrikaans pop music remained close to the bosom of the state and shows how deeply entrenched Afrikaner nationalism was in the Afrikaans culture industry. By the late 1960s, early traditional Bura music was initially rejected by the FRK as lowbrow music of the working-class Afrikaner had become absorbed into what was considered relatively acceptable Afrikaans music. But also, interestingly, at a stage, some of that Bura music became quite jazzy. All the Bura music chords are the mini chords, you know, you don't get normal chords in Bura music. And that jazz influence into Bura music is another different topic. And that also created a lot of tension within the Bura music community and also the SABC wanted to separate traditional Bura music from new tune. We didn't like Bura music originally, but now we see it as a, as a, as a cultural treasure. And... And we don't like this jazzy stuff. People like um, Nico Carson, who was a jazz virtuoso, 
he never wanted to be known as a Burmistic artist. He was beyond that. There's actually an interesting scene <laughs> between guys that flip between jazz and Burmistic effortlessly, you know, and could collaborate and improvise in spaces with black musicians that suspended the social hierarchies and the constructs outside of that room. Let's give Nico Carstens a listen with his widely popular song, Zambezi, where you can really hear the South African jazz influence merged with the Bura Musik accordion, though much of his catalogue was more traditional. recorded in when, you know, late 1930s or even late 20s and stuff. Oh, Burmistic. It's the uh, Burmistic, you know, and even if it went against the grain of, of the Afrikaner establishment, it does have a sonic quality that people have associations with. Being pop artists and selling records didn't make you a politico. A lot of them weren't involved in politics. They weren't conservative, you know, they weren't singers in service of the regime, you know, they were just, they had good voices, you know, whatever, and they just wanted to make records. But, but if you think about sonic landscapes, that it becomes a sound of whiteness. So you don't need explicit lyrics. For someone who doesn't understand Afrikaans, someone who's from, you know, KwaZulu-Natal, if you're Zulu, and you hear this, it has its own set of meanings and your connections to it. And you connect that with the Buddha, people of the opposition, the oppressor, whatever you want to call it. So, so you can't escape that. Because it's very clearly identifiable as the music of this group. You know, the concertina as an instrument. I'm not talking about the way it's played by Muskanda musicians, or, you know, Zulu musicians, the Zulu concertina, but, but the, the, the Burmistic concertina does have a value. It's like the lap steel guitar and country music. If you hear that, you kind of know, oh, you're in the deep south, you know, and you kind of automatically hang all sorts of different meanings to that sound and the musicians that are playing it and the people who listen to that. Oh, they're country people. And country people are generally conservative. You know, they're both Republican Trump supporters and they're anti-vaxxers and, you know, you can go <laughs> and, you know, they eat meat, uh, <laughs> whatever. And, and, and maybe that's unfair, but that's how people act. That's how people make associations. Let's take a quick break and hear a word from our media sponsors, Sowetan and Sowetan Live. The Sowetan is a proudly South African news, lifestyle and entertainment publication that dates back to the early 80s with its roots as a liberation struggle newspaper. It is still one of Mzanzi's most influential platforms of trusted journalism with over 3 million unique readers a month, promoting social activism and celebrating excellence. Pick up a copy daily at your nearest newspaper outlet nationwide or log on to Sowetan Live and be a part of the rhythm of the nation. 
Let's get back to the podcast. Welcome back to episode three of Gallo Vault Sessions. So far, we've heard a lot about the confines of the FRK mandate in its attempt to raise the cultural profile of the working class Afrikaner and the ways music was a central feature of the cultural construction of Afrikanerdom in South Africa. But in the late 1970s, while there's an intensification of apartheid, both politically against South Africa's black population and its artists, as well as against the white racial imagination, we do begin to see an emergence of new voices and genres in the Afrikaans language music scene who were exploring different sonic possibilities. Of course, during the 60s, the FRK becomes increasingly suspicious of popular music in the style of the Beatles, Elvis and the Rolling Stones because of rock and roll's association with anti-establishment politics and the civil rights movement, which clearly posed a threat to the fascism of the apartheid system. But influenced by the huge presence of Elvis, white South Africa saw a rise in local rock bands during this era. Whilst the majority sang in English, there were a few groups who would sing in both English and Afrikaans. A standout name from this era were the Bats, who eventually released their music on Gallo. Let's hear the title track from their Afrikaans album, Walter Freire Stasi, which plays on the themes of South African rugby and draws in the Afrikaans market, introducing the concertina to the realm of early rock and roll. Let's give it a listen. It is against this backdrop that our next guest, the esteemed and highly influential Anton Khoisen, was developing his own musical ear. I grew up in the Free State and my oma was into classical music, violin and cello and piano and played Bach and Rachmaninoff and whatever during the week till their fingers bled. But on Sundays they played jazz. Now, we're talking about the 30s or something of the previous century. And in Okahania, that was quite something, listening to jazz on a Sunday. And my father came from Kronstadt. His father, his opa, opa Hussein, was a pastor in the church. So these two families came together. So it's culturally a very, very mixed background from ultra-Afrikaans patriotism to the liberal side. And growing up in Kronstadt, I started listening to music there was a Chris Blichnert, and which will be in the vaults at Ad Gallo. He sang a lot of songs and made social commentary, but had a very naughty wimmy in a way, but very, very popular. But somehow, Chris Blichnert and the writings of Herman Charles Bosman, and then I heard Bob Dylan, and the three factors together, here by standard seven or something, I knew I wanted to do music. Let's listen to Chris Blichnert. Radar for Bayer, Gaan your old leaf lekker. 
ze wacht daar vanaf. Kom jacht maar aan, jacht maar aan, mijn oma. Chris Bluchnoot also did an Afrikaans rendition of the US country song Deep in the Heart of Texas with the title Deep in the Heart van die Bosveld. Deep in the Heart of the Bush. In January 1976, South Africa eventually got television and TV producers needed content. By this time, there was quite an established literary tradition of Afrikaans poetry, but Afrikaans music lacked lyrical content of similar nuance. Many mainstream FRK-approved artists like Ghe Korsten were still singing about the local flora and fauna of the country. So to create content, Fierda van der Merwe produced a show that set music against Afrikaans poetry and also commissioned a new string of songwriters and musicians to write and perform music that would provide a renewal and rejuvenation of Afrikaans music. They called it Musik in Lyric, Music and Lyric. Kijk hoe huil die venster uit, zachtjes val die winter in. More than a political movement, it was a cultural movement that led to a kind of folk and folk rock revival in the late 70s, early 80s. Alongside Goes Duplessis, Lore Garalg and David Kramer, Anton Gossen was really at the forefront of writing music with lyrical and cultural nuance. Unsurprisingly, the FRK did not approve. There were like 16 of my songs involved in this thing, but from there, it went to the stage, which was the market theater, and there were 80 people for a week. And then they took this on tour, and it became a major national movement, music and lyric. And the star called it the new wave of Afrikaans music, which I liked a lot, being into rock and roll a bit. For everybody, it was a, a dividing line from the brills and all those instant hits that they just translated from Europe for commercial reasons to something more substantial. The Bruderbund was still in charge and they then had a meeting, not a meeting, a conference at the SABC to have a discussion about this new little baby in Afrikaans. That's another thing about the Afrikaner. I mean, they, they trek away, they form their own churches, they have different groups. And as soon as something happens, they must have a symposium about it and discuss this to death. And that is what happened there. <laughs> that is just how it is. Let's listen to Anton Gossen's song Water Blomekies of his album Boy van die Suburbs, Boy from the Suburbs. Stop, tafelberg, ze hoed is op, 
If you listen to the entire song, it is people traveling in the Cape, and then when they get there, they see everything is fucked up. And I compared this to like a biblical figure of three people with a shining star from Bethlehem, and then the negativity when they get there. It's possible because it's one of those protest songs that they never knew was a protest song. At this time, Anton Hoysen was a reviewist for the Afrikaans newspaper Beeld, doing the pop columns. He attended the FRK symposium to advocate for this emergent singer-songwriter movement. I pushed for making peace with rock in Afrikaans, and with a seminar that they had, I had to make a speech and I played them examples of from Joan Armour training to Bob Dylan and said, make peace with this. And I was quite knowledgeable at that stage about what trends were and whatever. And I just played this as an example to them and said, make peace with this modern form of music. People singing about how they feel, what is going on around them, the way they see life, etc. And that's how Joan Armour training got into it. They just, they just sat there and listened. They actually organized two people to speak after me with basically the idea to attack me. They say, I, I grew up with Chuck Berry, to be with the father of rock and roll. I went right through the Rolling Stones up to today. Rock and roll, like in the 50s in America, was seen as a danger, like communism was a danger. It is, goes against the system. If there are flaws in the system, rock and roll will point it out and open its mouth, and you feel nothing for the establishment. So they decided that this has got to be watched and kept under control. And uh, I broke away from that. And we went on our own. A couple of songs got banned. There were very strict rules. No political songs, no references to political people, no sex. So as a writer, what I had to do when I wanted to do the protest thing was to be more subtle. Even if it needs to be using things that I knew the censorship board at the SABC, the internal one, wouldn't understand. Anton Gwissen wrote a lot of songs for a lot of other artists. And on Lorica Ralph's debut album, they have two songs, Atlantis and Panzerville, that Anton Gwissen wrote. And I think those two songs, Atlantis is about what did you do to my beautiful Cape? Um, it's about the harshness of colored kids living on the street. Mpanzaville is another name for Soweto, and he sings about the Groot Crocodile, the Great Crocodile, which was P.W. Boetus' uh, nickname at the time. James Mpanza was a leader in Soweto, one of the fathers of Soweto. At that stage as well, there was a suggestion I read about Soweto's name to be changed to Mpanzaville, after this James Mpanza. And I wrote this song around about a crocodile that had to be killed. So we have this nickname of P.V. Buita, the crocodile. And in the song Mpanzaville, the people kill the crocodile and then they dance and everybody's very, very happy. So I wrote a, a rock song in Afrikaans and Lorica recorded it and everybody was happy because they didn't know what was Mpanza. They didn't know about it. Let's give a listen to Mpanzaville, written by Anton Hoysen for Lorica Rauch on her debut album. <laughs> Slapen in 
censorship played a massive role in forcing artists and record companies to rethink possible offensive songs and censorship was really applied very subjectively. I, I imagine in my mind's eye a wimpy with a grey suit listening, you know, and if he doesn't like it, you know, they censored some gospel music sometimes. They censored Black Beauty just because of the name. It's about the horse. <laughs> In the wake of Musique and Lyric, Anton Huesen recorded the album Danza, which featured a collaboration with Gallo artists Lucky Dube. Surprisingly enough, it was also around this time that Richard Siluma and Lucky Dube collaborated on a satire bubblegum-style project in Afrikaans called Uum Hansi. This is their 1986 track, Ek Soek Die Lekker Ding. This was really a true surprise. By the mid-80s, the political climate in South Africa shifted drastically and the country was on fire. There were two states of emergencies. Anti-black political violence had escalated significantly and white South African men were continuously conscripted to the border war in Namibia, Zambia and Angola against the People's Liberation Army of Namibia and its allies across Africa and even Cuba. While some thrived in that environment, others were left traumatized, and Afrikaans' popular music remained almost entirely compliant with the regime in support of the war effort. Two of Gallo's biggest-selling artists of all time released albums in honor of the troops. Khe Kotsin's released Heistu, Homewards, the cover artwork with a stoic and smiling soldier in army fatigues proudly holding an assault rifle and donning a combat helmet. The other artist was Bless Bridges, who released Onbekende Vier Machman, Unknown Soldier. In direct contrast to this was the Fuelfrei Tour and movement, the Freebird movement, organized by Dirk Eis in the first half of 1989, which was overtly political and against the apartheid regime. It came after the success of Shifty Records' release of Fuelfrei, a compilation album in 1988 of Afrikaans' protest music. The three main acts of the tour were Bernoldus Niemant, Korskum bass the writer, and Johannes Kerkorl, who later signed to Gallo Music. Full Frey remains to this day the epitome of white Afrikaans protest music. It was a stark outbreak of alternative Afrikaner identities that not only went against the regime, but also the notion of Afrikaner ortentlikheid and middle-class aspirations. And they were explicitly critical of P.W. Boerter's brand of fascism. The biggest Afrikaans protest in 
Afrikaanse stad in die suidelike halfrond. I went to the launch of this thing and then off they went on their tour and which was apparently a diabolical tour and the newspapers, the liberal side of the newspapers were behind it, a lot of us were like behind it and, and off they went. Basically it was a political thing of fuck you Pevia and all you people that think like that and secondly to have a big party. The tour snowballed and created a platform where alternative-minded Afrikaners could meet each other. And they often played at concerts organized by the End Conscription Campaign, which was a movement against deploying white groups in the townships, which happened under the states of emergencies in the middle 80s, and also in conscription. You know, having to go fight for the apartheid regime when you're, you know, object to its ideologies and all that. So by performing on these stages, you know, they had an openly critical stance. The full freight movement came 10 years after Mr. Kinderik, and uh, that movement was basically built around Johannes Kerkorl, who was a journalist at that stage, and he wrote protest songs against the government, mostly this uh, up yours, BVS stuff. He wrote a couple of nice songs. He was like a difficult act, but he wrote a couple of nice songs. Hilbro was one of them. By the street cafes, and kijk all the mensen lopen in weer. The boomelaars raas by the wimpy bar, and fontanas op tot laat in the aand. Kaalvoetkenners in the street, wees parkeerplek aan, and hold on the hand. And hold on the hand, and hold the hand. Oh, and here, 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 here. Your center, your drama, your clear fall, gate, your heart for your brow. That was Johannes Kerkorl's Hillbrow. Part of the Basik and the Rick movement and the Fulfray was to free the language. The language didn't belong to the oppressor. The language belonged to the people that speak it. And that is what's so nice today. And especially in the Cape, because the language has got diverted into dialects and new words that come in. The thing about Afrikaans is... It's an African language, and it was born here in Africa, and it was probably born probably in out of protest, not protest, it was like a kitchen language. It was spoken by the people in the Cape. It wasn't pure Dutch, it wasn't English, etc. So here was this language born in, in this continent, which I'm very proud of. While they weren't released on Gallo, it would be a major oversight if we didn't mention the Genuines, a heavily underrated Cape Guma punk band that extended the Cape Glopsa music traditions into the full-frame movement. Let's hear their 1986 release, Guma, off the album of the same name. It's really something special.
In the second half of 1989, P.W. Boerter resigned from presidency, F.W. de Klerk succeeded him, and the next year, Nelson Mandela was released. While Fool Frey reached a peak and fizzled out quickly, it really kicked the door open for a steady stream of Afrikaans rock and punk on the other side of democracy. Karin Zoid, Fokov Polisikar, Jevels Fantastis, Van Koch Cartel, who all demonstrated a new Afrikaans voice in post-apartheid South Africa. Of course, like everything, Afrikaanerdom is not a monolith and remains complicated. Afrikaans kids trying to navigate the post-apartheid space, you know, it's a balance between historical guilt of the parents' generation and being you're still privileged, but you don't know which spaces you're welcome in or not. It's a lot about that and finding a voice. So it's, it really became a kind of an alternative subculture. Also from 2000 onwards, mainstream Afrikaans pop, and I'm talking about people like Yonita de Pesiti and Sudan, um, Gadarin, those guys were enormous commercial successes. If you look at the Sama Award, every year you get a Sama Award for biggest seller. And in the last 20 years, you can see how many of those biggest sellers were white Afrikaans pop singers. During the heyday of CD sales, these people would push over 200,000 copies per album, which is huge in a small market. But at the basis of that, that loyal support, lies a very a big element of fear that their cultural space is eroding. Pop, almost by definition, isn't, you know, doesn't function in that. It's a purely commercial thing, but there's this authenticity to it that its listeners have, that it's part of their cultural practices and part of their identity. And they feel that if they don't support that, it will fade away. It goes with that thing of people still hoying the, the old South African flag or wanting to sing the old anthem and etc and not wanting to move on just grabbing back for the past still singing in your khaki shirt with your acoustic guitar singing about the plus or being a bird and that's very popular now still very popular but that acoustic driven male voice deep male voice normally from pretoria singing about the land you know and the good old days there's a nostalgic element as well in white Acoustic rock. Like what happens when you talk about nostalgia in, in, in a post-apartheid sense? So you talk, the good old days, what does that mean? White Afrikaan is constructing a safe relationship with the troubled past, which makes it easier for them to negotiate the present without being overridden with guilt of being complicit in apartheid. You know, part of it, I don't see my white privilege. I don't this and that, and this is what. And, and there's also a sonic element in that. You can hear. <laughs> you, 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 they can hear what that sounds like, that thought process in, in Afrikaans pop music. But on the other hand, you know, nostalgia is a very, very big ingredient of popular music, you know. The record companies are not stupid and they, they utilize, they're there to make money, not to promote art and culture, not at all, not one of them that I know of, even the good ones. They really sapped the sentiment of the Afrikaner. If you really want to get to the Afrikaner, you like call up his sentiment. And you've got it. <laughs> We're weird. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh. 
We hope you have enjoyed taking a deep dive into parts of Gallo Music's Afrikaans language catalogue and learning how it both played into and went against the Broederborn's construction of Afrikaner or Denlakeit and nationalism. We know it was a heavy one. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, check out On Record by our guest, Skulk van der Merwe. In next month's episode of the podcast, we'll explore the talent scout and African music producer traditions at Gallo, from Griffith's Motsielwa to West Nkosi, and consider the huge impact they had on constructing what we now know as the sound of not just Gallo, but much of South Africa. Thank you for listening to the Gallo Vault Sessions, a new podcast series brought to you by Gallo Music in collaboration with Gonjo. Today's episode was researched, produced, and written by Zara Julius at Gonjo, with production support from The Good People, and narration by Kaneta Kanutu. Our theme music is the song Doi Doi by Marumo, and you're listening to Kansas City by The Movers. Special thanks to Tandiwe Njinga, Anton Khursen, Rob Allingham, and of course, Skulk van der Merwe. You can listen to our specially curated mix by musician Abraham Menon, tracing his favorite Afrikaans language sounds. You can find a link to that in the show notes and as always, the Gonjo Mixcloud page. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And please also review and give us five stars or however you rate this podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Gallo Vault Sessions, a podcast collaboration with Gonjo, with new episodes and curated mixes monthly. 